There's a new lead in the murder investigation of Tupac Shakur, Chuck Schumer's interesting UFO legislation, and how charging Trump in the January 6th probe could actually destroy the entire mainstream 2020 narrative. This is the Propaganda Reports Drive Time News Blast. I am Brad Binkley. I want to start today by talking about a story that's totally unexpected, which is that Police in Las Vegas have a new lead in the investigation into the 27-year-old murder of rapper Tupac Shakur. Las Vegas police obtained a search warrant, and yesterday they searched a home in the nearby city of Henderson, Nevada. A spokesperson with the LVMPD confirmed the search was part of the ongoing Tupac Shakur homicide investigation, but said they have no further comment at this time. The state of Nevada, it's worth pointing out, has no statute of limitations for murder, which is good. Tupac died in 1996, for those who don't know. I wonder if there's anybody listening to, to this show that actually is not familiar with Tupac Shakur. Is there anybody young enough to not know his story? I'll give a quick overview just in case. He died in 1996, a week after being shot in a drive-by shooting near the Vegas Strip. At the time, there was a violent rivalry going on between the East Coast and the West Coast rapper gangs. And Tupac was part of the West Coast. And leading up to his death, he had been in a feud with a rival rapper from the East. You might remember him, Notorious B.I.G., who six months later was also fatally shot and killed during a drive-by shooting. His murder has also not been solved. I'm betting that there is a genetic genealogy angle to this story. New DNA technology that enabled them to identify and match DNA that the old technology didn't enable them to do because that's what almost every single one of these cold case murder stories that come back into the news involves. This is all assuming that Tupac is dead, by the way. I wouldn't be a conspiracy theorist if I didn't point out that there are a lot of conspiracies about how Tupac is actually still alive. Some people believe he escaped to Cuba. There's another theory that he switched switched out with a body double after finding out there was a hit put out on his life, which obviously sucked for the body double. And he went off, I think, to what New Mexico. I don't know if if I might be combining two theories there. But I know some people believe he's in Mexico. Some think he's on Mars with Elvis. And it is definitely true that he has performed within, I can't remember, maybe five years ago, in a concert with Snoop Dogg because Snoop Dogg deep faked him onto a video and used a hologram of Tupac to have him perform at his concert. Because they started doing these concerts for holograms. And soon they'll just get rid of the actual performers and actual people. And it'll only be holograms that people are paying to go see. Which one did you guys like better as a rapper? Tupac or Biggie? I don't know. I think I probably remember Biggie's songs better. Those come to mind more easily. It's got to kind of suck to be known as Notorious B.I.G., Because then he's always got to be massive. He can't lose like 250 pounds, get in great shape like Tupac looked like he was in good shape. Because then he's not Notorious B.I.G. anymore. He's Notorious F.I.T. All right, next story. The story everybody's talking about today, obsessively talking about today. Especially CNN. They can't stop talking about it. And that is that Trump announced on Truth Social on Tuesday that he received a letter from special counsel Jack Smith telling him that 
He is a target in the January 6th investigation, and that Smith told him that he had just four days to report to the grand jury, which Trump said almost always means that there's an arrest and an indictment coming. I'd actually be a little surprised if that happened in this case, because if the Justice Department were to charge Trump with what the media is telling us they're likely to charge him with, they wouldn't just be putting Trump and his claims about the 2020 election on trial. They'd also be putting their own claims about the 2020 election on trial. And I don't know if that's something that they want people taking a closer look at. The charges were being told that Smith's target letter indicates would be pursued is the charge of obstructing the election certification process, including Trump's efforts to pressure Mike Pence into stopping the certification of Biden's victory. Now, if that does happen, if these charges are actually brought against Trump, then to prove their case, the Justice Department They would have to prove corrupt intent, meaning they would have to produce enough legally admissible evidence, which is different than what the media calls evidence. Enough of that to show beyond a reasonable doubt that on January 5th and January 6th of 2021, when Trump was telling all of his supporters that the election was fraudulent, he knew very well that it was not. He knew that Biden had won fair and square, yet he made those claims of fraud anyway. That's the case they would have to make. And in order to make that case, In order to prove that Trump knew very well while he was doing that, that the election was not fraudulent, the first thing the Justice Department would have to prove is that the election wasn't fraudulent. And not just by a little bit either. They would need to show that it's so obvious from an objective perspective that the 2020 election was not fraudulent that it's unreasonable to believe otherwise and disingenuous to claim that it was. In order to convict Trump, they would basically have to prove the often repeated claim that the 2020 election was the most secure in American history. So by charging Trump, they'd be putting themselves in a situation where they have to prove their propaganda with actual evidence that meets legal standards. Matter of fact, assertions might work in the news media, but that don't fly in a court of law where evidence to back up the claim must be produced at trial. And what is the only piece of evidence they ever cite? the media, President Biden, whoever else, to support this claim? That evidence would be that 2020 was the most litigated election of all time. That there were like 60 legal challenges to the election outcome that were brought, all of them based on Trump's claims, and all of them failed, proving that Trump's election fraud claims are baseless and that he's lying. This is the argument that they make. This is the go-to every time. How's that argument going to hold up in a court of law? Works great in the news media where it goes unexamined by those who consume it. But what about at trial where it will be examined and where the court records associated with those legal challenges will be available and will be looked at closely? How does their argument hold up then? Because that is the only evidence they ever provide us with to prove their claim that the election was so secure and to disprove Trump's election fraud claims. I'll tell you how it would hold up. It wouldn't. It would fail. It would fail badly. But that's not all it would do. It would also lend credibility to Trump's claims if this stuff was examined in an actual court of law and not just propagated by the news media. Because as you all know, most of those 60 or so cases, which they always reference in their argument, were not dismissed on the merits. They were dismissed due to standing or procedural or process issues, meaning that the merits of the claims made in those legal challenges have never actually been examined by a court. 
So if Trump's indicted for obstruction and this thing goes to trial, the only piece of evidence that President Biden and the media has ever relied on to debunk Trump's claims would be exposed as a lie. And it would be proven that despite what Biden and the media continue to claim, the dismissal of all of those election challenges in no way proves that the 2020 election was secure, nor do they disprove Trump's claims of fraud. In fact, it would be shown that the only thing they do in fact prove is that the merits of those election challenge claims have yet to be litigated. This is what Trump's lawyers will argue. How can Trump have known on January 5th, 2021, that there was no election fraud and be lying saying that there was, when still today, the Justice Department cannot prove that there was no election fraud? And unlike the media who can just ignore facts, the court will have to acknowledge the facts about the outcome of those election challenge cases because there are court records. And when they do acknowledge them, Trump's lawyers, if they're smart, will then argue that despite knowing that most of those legal challenges were not dismissed on the merits, Joe Biden and the media continued to tell the American people that they were in order to convince them that Trump's fraud claims had been debunked and that he's lying about everything, which makes this not only look like a cover-up, but it also makes it look like the one who is actually obstructing justice is President Biden. This is why I'd be surprised if they moved forward with the obstruction charges, because they wouldn't just be exposing their own lies, which typically you think they would not want to do. They'd also, at the same time, be lending credibility to Trump's claims. The ones that they've been saying for two years have been debunked. And quite possibly, they, they might also, for the first time, force a court in doing all of this to actually examine the merits of some of the claims made in those legal challenges. Wouldn't that be crazy? 60 or so, or ha however many legal challenges, all dismissed for those bogus reasons. And, and what it finally took to get a court to look at the merits is Trump being indicted for obstruction. An interaction last night between one of Trump's former attorneys and Caitlin Collins of CNN, The Source. That's her new show, The Source. Should be called The Unnamed Source or, or the, uh, the, the Anonymous Source or uh, Bullshit with uh, Caitlin Collins. Anyway, an interaction between those two illustrates exactly what I'm talking about. If he truly believed that there was fraud, uh, whether you agree with him or not, if he truly believed it and if his team truly believed it, what steps would you expect them to take? You know, you would expect them to take the steps of saying, hey, let's slow down the process and let's try to verify these things, kick it back to the states to make sure that the election results are accurate. So it is definitely one of those things where you know, it's it's not clear. It can be interpreted multiple ways. I mean, it's not like it's not as simple as Watergate where you know, they break into a hotel room and it's a clear crime. Anybody on either side of the aisle can see that. Yeah, here it is much more open to interpretation. But is it really open to interpretation if you have governors that he was pressuring to do things that you know, Brian Kemp of Georgia, Doug Ducey of Arizona, they said that they couldn't do. He was trying to get Mike Pence to do things that Mike Pence said he couldn't do. Of course, we had Rudy Giuliani and these other attorneys going into states and trying to get these slates of fake electors. I mean, that's more than just questioning it. I mean, they, they had 60 court cases that, that were all thrown out. See, there it is. There's that same old argument they always go to as evidence. He dispatches of it perfectly. They had 60 court cases that, that were all thrown out. 
Well, a lot of those court cases were thrown out on standing issues, and they were really thrown out pre-discovery. As to pressuring people to do things that the people say they can't do. Did you see her reaction there? She kind of turned her head up and raised her eyebrow a little bit. Maybe a little cognitive dissonance there. Watch her reaction after he says that. It's almost as though she really didn't know that. Well, a lot of those court cases were thrown out on standing issues, and they were really thrown out pre-discovery. As to pressuring people to do things that the people say they can't do, that's one of those things where you really have to look into it and say, were they really pressuring them to do something that is you know, clear black-letter law that they're not allowed to do? Or again, is it one of those things where it's open to interpretation? When it comes to Mike Pence, obviously there are different interpretations as to what his powers are under the Electoral College Act. And it's one of the reasons why Congress, you know, then went to amend the act to kind of close it and make it a lot more clear that his role is purely ceremonial because there was confusion and there were different interpretations. It's such a reasonable, logical argument. Yet they act as though it's crazy. They had to go change the law to clarify after the fact to say that it was a ceremonial role Mike Pence played so that they could make it seem like Trump violated some law. I guess the argument's going to be, no, everybody knew it was ceremonial, even though it didn't say that before. But you see, we changed it. It's just so backwards. Everything he said in that clip is correct. And everything he said would defeat any argument that the Justice Department, if the charges are obstruction would bring that would dismantle them. I mean, I would think the case would get dismissed right away, but obviously that's not going to happen if it even goes to trial. I mean, this is the type of case that nothing's above corruption, but when you have the court records on file of the outcomes of all of those challenges, and that is the main argument made kind of hard not to put the spotlight on the fact that the media and the president have been, lying and telling people the opposite of what is true about all of that for two years now. Maybe they have another angle. I don't know. Maybe they won't charge him. Or or maybe this is a curveball and what the actual charges end up being are something totally different. I guess we'll have to wait and see on the edge of our seats. All right. I want to talk about one more thing related to this story. There was a poll conducted in January of this year by the University of New Hampshire of likely GOP primary voters that found that Ron DeSantis had a 12 point lead over Trump. In the seven months since that poll was conducted, Trump has been indicted twice and the media has talked nonstop about the possibility of up to four indictments. And so naturally, in the most recent version of that poll that was published yesterday, Trump has gained 26 points on DeSantis. And he now leads him by 14 points. In another poll that was published yesterday, this one from the Morning Consult, Trump's lead is even larger. In that one, his advantage over DeSantis is 35 points, a commanding lead. The point is that if all of this indictment news and all of the negative coverage CNN has been giving to Trump are intended to knock him out of the GOP primary race, it's not working. In fact, It kind of looks like that's not the point at all. And like the actual point is to ensure that he becomes a Republican nominee. This has long been my position on this since this whole circus started. You guys know that CNN is doing the exact same thing they did in 2016. When after the election, because of all of the attention they gave Trump, they were accused of making him president. 
It's the same story all over again. Except now they're like, we refuse to bury our head in the sand. We have to warn people. Yeah, okay. All of the coverage they do on Trump assumes that he has already won the GOP nomination. They are reporting on him. Watch. You can, you can tell. It's obvious. They're reporting on him as though the general election is already here. Even the other Republicans that they bring on, the other candidates, they force them to talk about Trump because they don't care about what those people's campaign plans are because they know they're not going to win. So they try and force these Republicans to say negative things about Trump. Tapper did it to DeSantis just yesterday. He goes on CNN, which he's been very volatile with. And all Tapper does is try and ask him questions about Trump. Watch this. I do have to ask about the breaking news today. Uh, Your chief. This is the first question. Right out of the gate. I do have to ask about the breaking news today. Uh, Your chief competitor, the front runner right now, uh, Donald Trump, says he was informed that he is the target of special counsel Jack Smith's investigation into efforts to overturn the results of the 2020 election. And Mr. Trump has until Thursday to report to the grand jury. If Jack Smith has evidence of criminality, should Donald Trump be held accountable? I'll let you hear the rest of that in a minute. They do that to every GOP candidate that comes on CNN. All of them. They try and force them to make it all about Trump, except for Chris Christie, who makes it all about Trump on his own, because that's his job. That's what he's being paid to do. And look at the position it puts Trump's opponents in. You got all the indictment news stories. You got CNN going, do you support uh, the prosecution of Trump or do you not? It forces Trump's GOP opponents, the ones that don't want to immediately eliminate themselves from the race anyway, to have to defend him. Can you imagine having to go around defending a guy who calls you pudding fingers? It's pretty obvious that CNN doesn't care about the other candidates. They don't care about what their position is because the general election is already here in their eyes. I'm going to play the rest of this clip for you. And then after, I'm going to tell you why I think it's funny. Should Donald Trump be held accountable? So here's the problem. Uh, This country is going down the road of criminalizing political differences. And I think that's wrong. Alvin Bragg stretched a statute in, in Manhattan to be able to try to target Donald Trump. Most people, even people on the left acknowledge, if that wasn't Trump, that case would not have likely been brought uh, against a normal civilian. And so you have a situation where Department of Justice, FBI, uh, have been weaponized uh, against people they don't like. And the number one example of that happened to be against Donald Trump with the Russia collusion. Uh, that was not a legitimate investigation that was being done to try to drive Trump out of office. And so what I've said as president, my job is to restore a single standard of justice to end weaponization of these agencies. We're going to have a new FBI director on day one. Uh, we're going to have big changes at the Department of Justice. Americans across the political spectrum need to have confidence that what is going on is based on the rule of law, not based on what political tribe you're in. DeSantis just told Tapper to his face that the biggest example of weaponizing the justice system was the Russia collusion hoax, which was not a legitimate investigation. Jake Tapper won an award for his investigative reporting on the Russia collusion story. Even He was even credited with putting the phrase Russian dossier into our political lexicon. He was awarded a $2,500 prize for reporting a story that 
DeSantis is to his face saying was the biggest hoax. I just thought that was funny. He's just telling you're bogus, dude. You are bogus, Tapper. And Tapper doesn't even respond to it. Doesn't even defend himself. Okay, so there is another potential GOP candidate that I want to point out to y'all real quick because the media has kind of been lobbying this guy a little bit lately, most likely because he's the type of guy who would happily accept a Chris Christie-like role, meaning that he would just enter the race for the sake of going after Trump and modeling to the American people what a proper Republican looks like, Uh, the kind of Republican that liberals find respectable. None of those dirty MAGA Republicans. And that potential candidate that I'm talking about is, of course, Georgia Governor Brian Kemp. Here's Caitlin Collins asking Kemp if he's thinking about maybe jumping in the race. Governor, thank you for joining us here in Washington. Normally, I would probably ask this question last, but because of some comments you made recently, I'm going to ask it first. Have you fully closed the door on running for president in 2024? (laughs) Well, I have a lot of people writing a lot of different things about me in uh, 2024. And I've, I've said, look, in politics, there's always doors opening and closing. I got a great job right now. Uh, I personally feel like having more people in the race does not help us win and beat Joe Biden. Um, so, you know, I, I'm certainly not running for president, uh, but there's always doors open in politics, depending on how things play out. And we'll see what happens. So he didn't actually say no there. Even though it was reported as though he did. He said, well, I'm certainly not running for president, but, you know, doors open in politics. So he, he actually was saying he's open to the possibility of another door opening in politics. So that's just something to keep an eye on. Oh, and also, almost all of this interview, they talked about Trump. He happily talked about Trump. That's why I think that he could be slotted in as a Chris Christie-like guy. Okay, before moving on, let's see the dumbest clip of the day. This is a CNN panel discussion of seven people around the table talking about special counsel Jack Jack Smith's bold and brave trip to Subway after news of Trump being a target of the Jan 6 probe broke. This is a two-parter. They're both very short. Here's the first one. Uh, of course, on the special counsel side, that's the Justice Department and its appointee, Jack Smith. Jack Smith is tight-lipped. He was spotted today by CNN going to Subway for lunch, picking up a sandwich, leaving, and not saying a word. So no comment from the special counsel's office on whether they plan to indict Donald Trump and when that is potentially going to happen for the second time for a federal case. Well, it certainly ain't going to happen until he gets done tearing up that Subway sandwich. What's he supposed to say? Uh, I got Italian with extra olives? Why, why are you following the guy to Subway? Now here is the always insightful John King's interpretation of that Subway sandwich trip. And just one last point. Jack Smith, remember when the classified documents target letter, when Trump announced that, there was a lot of commentary. You know, is Jack Smith making a mistake here? Is he leaving this all to Donald Trump? And then they released the indictment and we all said, wow, wow. We read it. We saw the documentation. We saw the level of detail. Jack Smith going to Subway today is a message to Donald Trump. Mm -hmm. Donald Trump tries to intimidate people. He tries to bully people. He tries to scare you away. That was Jack Smith with no words and a simple $5 sub in his hand saying, I'm here. I'm not going anywhere. Yeah, the imagery was was intentional and spoke volumes. Thank goodness John King got that final point in. That was something that people needed to hear because Jack Smith's trip to Subway wasn't lunch. It was a message. A message to Donald Trump that let him know 
that neither Jack Smith nor anyone else on the planet is going to be intimidated by him, is going to be stopped from going to Subway out of fear of what might happen to them. Because everyone knows that nothing pisses Trump off more than people eating at Subway. And I'm sure you heard his message to Smith about that very thing. Here's my message to not-so-special prosecutor Jack Smith. If I find you within 500 yards of a Subway, I'm going to find you, Jack Smith. And I'm going to cover your body in Italian sauce and banana peppers. More More banana peppers than you've ever seen. And I'm going to stuff you inside of a six-foot-tall, slit-down-the-middle piece of white French bread. And then I'm going to feed every inch of my sandwich, I call it the Jack Smith, to Jared from Subway. Okay, I'm going to have to push the UFO story until tomorrow. I do have one more story to get to today, however, which is about a question that everyone wants to know the answer to. Which country's women have the largest average breast size? Before we get to the answer to that age-old question, I want to tell you what we're going to talk about in the Drive Time News Blast XR, the subscriber-only portion of the show. We're going to analyze a couple more brand-new political campaign ads that kind of shocked me in their lack of awareness. I guess one of them was from Chris Christie, so it shouldn't have shocked me. But still, it was like, how could a campaign ad be this bad? We're going to go through that. We're going to talk about it. If you want to get access to that subscriber-only content, you can go to patreon.com slash report and subscribe there today. That's how I support myself. That's how I support the show. And what you will get along with these subscriber-only content is you will also get this show, the DMB, ad-free. I take the ads out for all subscribers, and I put it together with the XR, and it goes into your own private Patreon RSS feed that you can pop into any podcast app player that you listen on. Okay, now on to the final story of the day and the most important question of our time. Which country's women have the largest average breast size? Here's the story. New data has been published from researchers at an organization called World Data that ranks which country's women have the largest average breast size in the world. Let's do a top five countdown. I will say this. On this chart here, two through five all have the same average breast size, those countries. I think there's a little bit of, of difference in the, the percentage points, the, you know, but that's not, that doesn't show on this chart that I'm looking at here. So I'm just going to give you the numbers. Coming in at number five, the country whose women have the fifth largest average breast size in the world, the United Kingdom. Congratulations to the Brits up there. We love the accent, and we also love that average national breast cup size of C cup. Keep up the good work. Two through five are all C cups. A notch ahead of the Brits at number four is the United States of America. Right here at home, congratulations, ladies, on that average national C cup of a C. Coming in at number three is Iceland, with the number two spot being occupied by a bit of a surprise. Luxembourg, the small European country surrounded by Belgium, France, and Germany. Who knew that the top tourist attraction in Luxembourg was the local women's bosoms? And finally, coming in at number one, the nation whose women have the largest average breast size in the world, drum roll please, 
Norway with a national average of nearly a D cup. Congratulations to Norway. Your prize for coming in first place is you will receive expats from all over the world who are boob men. If you're wondering which country came in last place, it was Vietnam with an average national cup size of AA. And that's where we're going to wrap up the show for today. Thank you for watching. Thank you for listening. If you want to get access to that Drive Time News Blast XR that we're about to go into, subscribe at patreon.com slash propaganda report today. We'll talk to you guys next time. Have a fantastic rest of your day.